You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with me today, Ben from Propify. Ben, super happy to have you on. Nicholas, yeah, thanks for having me. Amazing. Let's jump right in. What problem does Propify solve? So Propify, um, like a lot of companies uh, in, in, in different industries, solves um, a really tricky problem, which is allowing companies to integrate with the systems of record. In our case, it's in real estate. So Plaid solved this problem in, in, in fintech. Next Health has solved this problem in healthcare. And a lot of other industries um, have a solution as well. But real estate was really behind the times. Uh, when it came to being able to read and write the the necessary data that sort of runs the industry. And so our tool allows companies, both startups as well as, you know, large scale companies, integrate with the systems of record, the CRMs, if you will, of real estate. These are called property management software systems. Um, we help them integrate so that they can provide their service or read the necessary data to execute their service for their customers. Who's the typical buyer of that? Like, major players like BlackRock who have like thousands and thousands of, of, uh, sure. of properties or, or smaller property owners? Yeah, so, so the goal is to actually help companies like BlackRock uh, consolidate all of their data. Um, but right now we actually are solving for prop techs. So tech companies um, that are brand new to the industry or ones that you might have heard of all the way up to companies like Assurant or Home Depot that provide a lot of services to property managers and owners throughout the country. Um, and the data that's stored in these systems is the tenant information, the lease information, the vendor and procurement details, being able to write to the ledger and the accounting system, um, all of the unit and property and address and location details of the, of the real estate. And so if you are a service that offers uh, work order automation, so you help to automate and reduce the cost of maintenance requests, you need to know when a tenant submits a maintenance request or has a problem with their building, And to triage and 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 use that information to provide your service, and then write back and update those those um, those work orders. So the systems we integrate with are really they're basically CRMs. They're just a CRM in a niche vertical that is real estate. Okay, then I, I try to explain as a dummy. Then you need to correct me if I misunderstood it. So you're basically I'm prop tech, so I basically need to to help my property property managers, for example. And then are you the, you're not the system of records, but you're basically the middleware between me, the prop yeah. tech SaaS company and all these systems of records so that sure. it basically flow, the data flows in the right directions. Yeah. Yeah. So unlike the CRM industry, which has two main players, Salesforce and HubSpot, um, the property management software industry is quite fragmented. So there's about eight to 10 companies that make up 80% of the, um, of the, of, of the volume. Um, but it's very much distributed across those eight. And in fact, like in the top five, they all have, you know, double digit percentages, but it's not like 30, 40, 50% huh, of market share. And so because of that fragmentation, if you're, if you're a prop tech, you need to be able to integrate with all of these systems because during your sales cycle, the thing that will kill a deal is not being able to integrate with that system. So in the, before Propify, companies were building unique integrations into each of these systems 
And their SOAP APIs, so legacy technology, a lot of them have poor or inaccurate documentation. Many of them are closed systems with pretty convoluted approval processes. And we help navigate all of that. And you just have to integrate with Propify's API. Uh, and we do all of the translations and the access controls to the different systems. That's super intriguing. Then let's go back to where it started. Like, I stalked your LinkedIn as one does. And you're, it says you started sure. roughly a year ago. Give me the founding story. How, how, did, how did it came to be? Yeah, so um, my co-founder and I, Remen, there's actually three co-founders, but we met our CTO a bit after the fact. Um, we had worked at HubSpot together for a long time. So I worked at HubSpot for um, close to eight years, uh, was the product manager building their CRM. And we, uh, Remen, my, my co-founder and I really hit it off. And he's a, a former founder and um, asked if I'd be interested in starting a company one day. I said I would. So for a year, we were investigating the real estate space um, on nights and weekends. And we decided to launch a company um, that was focused on independent landlords, so not these big property managers. And it was in the, the payment space. So helping to digitize uh, cash or check payments or helping to convert digital payments from tenants into the cash or check that the landlord wanted. So as we were building this product and fundraising, we actually stumbled upon this very problem of integrating with the systems of record. And as we were building this, uh, these integrations, we we're like, this is the problem we need to solve. This is, is one of the biggest barriers to entry to growing quickly in prop tech. And one of the biggest challenges engineering teams are facing is the lack of this core infrastructure that FinTech now has, that a lot of these other industries have. And we need to bring this to the space. So we shifted gears um, and started focusing on that. Um, got some early contracts, applied to Y Combinator, and uh, we're off to the races. How's your experience in Y Combinator so far? Y Combinator was, was, uh, was amazing. I mean, it was transformational for our team. So um, we really committed to succeeding during Y Combinator. Uh, like anything else, school, work, et cetera, you really get out of it what you put in, and it requires a, t a ton of work if you want to do well. Um, so the three of us, we all have families. Um, we all moved out to California and lived in a house together, uh, for, for three and a half months, uh, and took it very seriously. We're working, uh, night and day, seven days a week out of the house and in the kitchen. And, uh, it really helped us focus on what was actually important, which was building and selling. Not any of the other extracurriculars like culture and hiring and, Uh, and marketing, those things are, are very important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to prove out that you have product market fit. And the only way you can do that is to sell and sell aggressively, get that feedback, get those customers using. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. We, we didn't spend calories on anything besides selling and building. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you a boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. You ran through YC, uh, YC. You're on like the typical VC path, basically, meaning like targeting sure. the, the unicorn uh, status some, someday. Yeah. How do you plan in those early stages to get there? Just like maybe not even strategically, but mentally, because like 
trying to build a small company and trying to build a billion dollar company are like very distinctly different things. Sure. Yeah. So when you get into Y Combinator, one of the first one of the first group meetings that you have, they basically focus on that as they say, hey, if you want to be successful um, as we near the end of the batch and, and raise money from from some of the big VCs, uh, you need to prove that you can be a billion dollar company. Because even if there's a chance, a 70 percent chance that you can be a 30 million dollar company, that is not as attractive to them as a one percent chance you could be a billion dollar company. And so the, the biggest thing there is you need to have the requisite math that proves you have a TAM that can reach a billion dollars. And what does that mean is that really means you need to reach $100 million in ARR. Um, and if you can reach $100 million in ARR, you will be a billion dollar company. And that's obviously incredibly challenging. Um, but you need to prove that that is possible whether that's with the contra- average contract values that you have and how many customers are in the market. Um, but being able to prove that out and showing evidence of those contract sizes and the number of companies was one of the earliest earliest things. Um, but, but the big thing that they sort of talked about was in the early days, it's not necessarily about hiring. So they're, they're kind of opposite big VC on that front, which is like, let's raise a lot of money and grow really fast. They are much more keep it lean uh, make sure the founders can do everything and you you can sell, you iron out those processes, you can renew, you have people upgrading. All of those metrics are the leading indicators that you can get there. Once you have all of that in place, then you build the team behind it to, to um, you know, accelerate velocity. So really get the fire burning first and then put fuel on it. Exactly. Don't put fuel on something that like has a lot of unknowns. I would love to dig deeper in one specific part because I kind of move between those like bootstrapper indie circles and, and the venture backed folks. How do, did you like personally as a founder, as a family man, make the decision that you want to go for the unicorn and not for the quote unquote lifestyle business, which can be a tremendous or is usually yeah. a tremendous sure. lifestyle, especially for the founders. How, how, how did you make that decision? We, we actually, um, we had a lot of conversations about this and I think we landed on something that's, that's, that was interesting, which was let's shoot for a unicorn status, but let's make sure we manage burn and have to raise no more money after this round so that if this becomes a lifestyle business, if for whatever reason, this is a $30 million business, we have enough ownership percentage that we are setting our families up for success. And so I think what we basically chose is not a path that was Yes, there's absolutely a path of unicorn. We are going to raise a lot of money and put everything behind it. But if it fails, our diluted percentage just would not be a good outcome at 50 million, 30 million. We chose a route, which is like, let's still shoot for the stars. We have a clear runway to get there. Uh, we have a clear path to get there. There's enough companies. There's enough. Um, there's our, our contract values are high enough. There's an, enough sort of sequel opportunities that we can, we can have after our initial, our initial product. Um, but let's grow at a pace that does not require VC funding to, to, to do so. Do you feel like you need to make a final decision on that before the next round? No, and, and I think the reason for that was alongside of, of YC, we did then, you know, raise... Uh, some institutional money from a VC. 
um, as well as some angels uh, in the space and some of the um, the the a lot of these large property management companies, whether it's Graystar or Brookfield or Tishman Spire, they have innovation teams um, at their companies that that do investments. So we did take some investments, some uh, from one of those innovation teams as well. So so we have enough capital uh, to grow our team and to go after that. But we really had a goal. We we made our first dollar in in January of this year. We had a goal of reaching 1.2 million in ARR by end of year, uh, and we felt that if we were able to do that, we'd be cash flow positive based on our burn, and then we would make a decision from there: do we need to raise more money, or to really accelerate growth, or should we just continue and and slowly chip away at this? So I think we basically made that decision, and then at end of year, we're going to regroup and decide. Uh, is it worth a, a Series A, or, or are we going to uh, continue with what we're doing? Makes it let's move on from the whole bootstrapping the VC sure. part conversation to to get to what every founder needs to 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 deal with basically getting clients in the in the door. So how do you actually yeah. grow the company day to day? Like what tactics are you using? What what could yeah. someone listening in an, in another industry maybe steal from sure. you in terms of client acquisition? Sure, it's it's a really uh, it's a really good question, and I think the answer differs depending upon the industry. So, you know, being at HubSpot, we were selling generically to uh, to, to generic companies, any sort of small business. It didn't matter what you were doing; you could you could use HubSpot. And so, for there, it was much more about being an expert in creating content. And that content was, what do all of our customers have in common? They want to make money and they want to grow their business. So let's just be an expert at creating content that draws in anybody who wants to grow their business. For us, we can be a little bit more specific because we're in a niche vertical. If you are a prop tech company, uh, you might be really focused on certain problems unique to prop tech. And we can address those problems once we started to learn that pain. So there's a, a couple things that we did at first. Uh, we went to all of these companies that I mentioned that we helped you integrate with the property management companies. And a lot of them have web pages that have the integration partners or the, the marketplace partners, companies that have already built natively integrations into their systems. And we said, okay, do any of these only have two integrations that we can see and probably are in need of the others? And we created these lists and we just did cold outbound. But our outbound could be super specific, founder to founder, talking about a problem we knew they had. Um, which was that these integrations cost a lot of money to build, they cost a lot of money to maintain, and they take a lot of time. And they're also preventing you from bringing revenue into the, into the business uh, if you don't have them. And so we did a lot of cold outbound. Alongside that, um, really boosting our LinkedIn content, sharing that we were shipping new features weekly. Uh, because one thing that was unique to our space is that tech moves really slow in real estate. And I think it was refreshing that a company is showing all of the product updates that we were doing weekly. But prior to doing that, my co-founder and I made sure we LinkedIn connected with every single founder, CTO, engineer at all of the top 1,000 product companies. And by doing so and them accepting our request, we would then reshare our company's posts And they would just start to see weekly on their LinkedIn. And we drove a ton of inbound that way um, by just being present on LinkedIn and not reaching out directly, but more indirectly because of those, those LinkedIn connections. 
So very technically speaking, you first send the invite. That means I think if someone follows, like basically connects the request, both parties follow each other. Thus, if you do the post, they see your post. So if they're interested, they get inbound exactly. to you, correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we really leaned on, on LinkedIn a lot. Um, and then for us, conferences are big uh, because at these conferences, uh, there's, there's about five or six every year that, that a lot of people attend. You have the property managers who are trying to buy uh, technology solutions. So then the prop techs are, are also there. And we get to kind of be in between talking to the prop techs and talking to the property managers, learning a lot about them. Um, and our product, you know, we, we've built a career building great products uh, at HubSpot. And so we, we know how to build a good product. And that speaks for itself. So we really early on leaned on UI, even though we have a, a backend product, right? Like we have an engineering product. Uh, the UI was super important to us because we wanted to be able to demo really, uh, really well to, to founders and show them, hey, this is not, you know, vaporware. This is, this is something that's really going to help your business. As a former PM, what are the biggest lessons you're, you're taking now into, your, into the founderhood, basically? Yeah, I would say the, um, a PM learns to do a few different things well. One is, um, a, a lot of people don't know unless they become a product manager, but uh, half of your job is internal politics and selling your vision upwards. Uh, and while I'm a founder and I'm not really having to sell my vision upwards, um, being able to articulate and communicate that, that vision is incredibly important. So I'm not communicating upwards. I'm actually using that skill set and communicating outwards to our customers, understanding and communicating that the product and the vision of why this is important to the industry has was was really really important uh, and then the second thing is just prioritization you know especially with this a small team you have to be ruthless with with prior with like prioritization and um you have to get comfortable with half-baked features if they're solving a problem and that allows you to to learn knowing that you can can um imp improve them you know afterwards so you 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 have to develop that muscle as a pm and, and that's been really useful then for the people who are coming or planning to doing the jump from rather big tech company and maybe being a PM, they are just like another type of employee into, into being a father. What were habits that you needed to stop doing? Because I, I, I bet there were a couple huh. of those as well. Habits that I needed to stop doing. Um, well, at a company like HubSpot, you, uh, when I, I, I was there quite early on, but as it got big, I mean, the last several years, um, everyone solves a, a very small problem at the company and you have people that are experts in any given thing. And there's a lot of like, Hey, can you take this on? Can you do this? As a founder, you have to build all of that. Um, you, you have to be support. You have to be, uh, uh, accounting and finance and, uh, administration and coordinating times and emails. Like there's a lot of things that you have to do. And, um, you have to get and, and be okay with that. You have to be really comfortable um, with that. Did you, and now basically emotionally speaking, so to say, what's the, what's the hardest part about making that shift? Sure. I, I'd say, you know, my co-founders and I are, are uh, well, Remen and I are in our 30s, our CTO is in his 40s. Um, again, we all have families. 
And so I think it w- would have been really hard for us to start a business in, in our in our 30s, which a lot of people are trying to do, if we didn't have the support from our, our wives. And luckily, that also included financial support, because for the first year, we weren't we weren't paying ourselves. And so we were living on our, our, our wife's salaries. You know, we, we had done well at HubSpot, but but having that was incredibly important to us. Um, and so if I hadn't had that, I don't know if I would have been able to, to make the, make the leap. Um, if you're young, uh, and you are just ready to learn and get your hands dirty, and that's not as important, um, because you don't have to support a family. You don't have to worry about saving for school and, and things like that. Um, then I'd say just jump in. Like, I wish I had become a founder sooner. Um, you really learn more in, in the first several months than you do in years at a, at a big tech job. I love that. And then this, the last question before we wrap up, what's the, the big vision for Propify? Yeah, so I think the, the big vision for us is um, real estate has tons of rich data and can actually be a playground for a lot of companies to sell their products um, because it holds a rich tenant information, not just like location or... or um, Uh, not just like location information or what they might be interested in, um, but you can deliver products that are unique to their home. Um, and so I think that by us opening up uh, this ecosystem and making it really easy to work with the systems of record of real estate, I think any company could um, start using this as a market that they can they can penetrate and start selling really interesting products into. Um, and then secondly, I think we just want to be the company that was known for really leveling up uh, prop tech and real estate um, and kind of bringing the technology out of the dark ages and allowing it to be a wonderful place to, to build and, uh, and create new products and ideas. I love that. And then again, Ben, thanks a ton for coming on today. And for the, for the prop tech founders listening, how can they reach you? Yeah, you can find us on getpropify.com. Uh, there's a meeting link there, or you can just reach out to me directly uh, at ben at propifyapp.com uh, and I'll, I'll answer quite quickly. Perfect. Thanks a ton, man. Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Appreciate you having me on. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.